I tend to do some different styles of talk. Sometimes I give very formal talks. Sometimes I give talks that are more improvisatory. Um, one of the, sometimes we do questions and answers. Um, tonight I'd like to do one of the more improvisatory styles. Stefano, let's, let's turn it off. Let's turn off the ventilation. Thanks. Well, we, we kept it on to try to air it out a bit during the meditation. Um, but one of the things I like to do is make up a talk with you. So what that means is that I'd like you to think about what, what you would like the talk to be about tonight. What would be most interesting to you or most vital or most or what themes have you never heard talked about that you would like talked about in relation to the Dharma or meditation or Buddhist teachings or your life in the Dharma. And then I'll take a bunch of themes and then I'll make up a talk using the themes that you give me, that you offer. So the better the themes, sometimes better the, the better the talk. <laughs> You can never tell exactly how a talk like this is going to come out. So take a moment to really contemplate, you know, what, what would you like the talk to be about tonight? I would like to hear some about the Brahma Viharas. Brahma Viharas. What about them would you like to hear? Is there anything specific? Um, a general idea. Okay, more general, okay. Uh, I'd like to talk about right speech and when I, within that, the notion of truth-telling and right intention uh, fits within truth-telling when it comes to protecting somebody else not, not conveying a piece of information that will hurt another person, but will the, the fact of actually bringing that uh, fact to bear with that person will also cause pain to the, to me in delivering that truth. Okay, so right speech, truthfulness. Um, I'm interested in the Western concept of self-esteem and self-worth and how that relates to Anada. Mm-hmm. Self-esteem and self-worth and the relationship to anatta. How about the ways that practice can complement psychotherapy? The ways practice might or might not complement psychotherapy? <laughs> And we're going to get chanted tonight. It's lovely. Maybe I should just be quiet. 
else? Let's see. Uh-huh. Okay, peace and the lack of peace. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Compassion and forgiveness. Okay. Let's see. Desire and renunciation as a householder. perspective of Buddhism, I, I don't know that I could do that, to be honest. <laughs> and this is ironic that everyone was chanting all of a sudden, but I've been uh, noticing just the great difficulty of being mindful with one's own voice. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have your own experience with that? Or mindful of my voice? Um, yeah, if there's teachings about it, or mm-hmm. like that, that part of being mindful of the body. Mm-hmm. Speech, generally, yeah, okay. I mean, okay. knowing that uh, fear of public speaking is like the number one fear that people have. Right. Okay. Okay. The use of humor and teaching the Dharma. Humor. Okay. Okay. I think that's enough for now. <laughs> we, if if I run short, I'll ask for a few more. I go through this in the first 15 minutes. Let's see. Okay, let's see what happens. Um, So I think the first place I'd like to start is actually talking about what it means to practice in our time, in our era, in this um, time when the world is very, very small, much, much, much smaller than the era that the Buddha lived in that we know what's happening all over the world now, every day, almost updated by the hour. And we're impacted by that reality, by that knowledge, by the fact we know what's happening in Lebanon or in Beirut 
or in South Africa or in anywhere really anywhere where the media decides to turn its attention which is pretty much anywhere these days and so we're practicing with the reality of the world getting very very small I wish I would have brought it somebody sent me something about what it was like a hundred years ago in America the average um, speed limit of any city in 1906 was 10 miles an hour I think the, the, the age span was about 50 the average age span a hundred years ago Las Vegas had 30 people living in it at that time I mean you even just to hear that this was just about America but I mean you just hear how small things were and now we're feeling the impact of a world that's quite close to us and quite big in many ways I mean clearly the wars the uh, the um, injustice in the world we're faced with day in and day out the um, the weather I mean something's happening it seems right and even if you're not a diehard global warmest something's going on and so it's a really important question how do we practice with this what do we do with all this information? What do we do with all the suffering that we're seeing, that we're faced with? How do we sit with it? How do we respond to it? And Buddhism doesn't have a list of answers, doesn't have a list of responses. Oh, one is supposed to do this or should do this or this is what, how we should respond. What, what the Buddha offered was a way of living that when one engages quite fully uh, can offer the possibility for, for response, for responsibility, for a response ability, for an ability to respond to reality. And so the, the, the teaching, the Dharma first of all offers us skills to begin to learn how to be present with our experience and our experience starting with our body or our breath or right in the closest in place like right here and then slowly expanding that capacity to open to all of reality and the same principles come into play what does it mean to be mindful what happens when we're mindful of what we're experiencing of what's impacting us what does it mean to be compassionate to ourselves and to others in this way and then where what's and again the, the Zen teaching that I like to use and think of is the student comes to the Zen master and says what's the goal of a lifetime of practice what's the goal of a lifetime of practice 
The teacher doesn't say enlightenment or freedom or liberation or the teacher says an appropriate response, an appropriate response. And an appropriate response is based on our present centeredness and our presence. That there's an inherent, there is valued, respected, and um, realized through the Buddhist teaching an inherent intelligence, an inherent kindness, an inherent creativity that can then respond to reality. Part of that response, part of that intelligent response at times is actually not knowing what the right response is. And so sometimes we think we're supposed to know. We're supposed to figure it out. That may not be where the answer comes from. In, in um, contemplative culture, in Buddhism especially, not knowing is highly valued. Suzuki Roshi's famous book, which is one of the gems of the Dharma, if you've never read it, is called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And he says in the introduction, he says, in the expert's mind there are many opinions. In the beginner's mind there are few. That it's with that kind of mind that we're cultivating, a mind that's fresh, that's actually grounded in the reality of the present moment so we can respond to the reality of the present moment. If we respond to the war, the injustice, the racism, the um, hatred of the world, the discrimination, the, the confusion, the greed, the lack of compassion from our own confusion, from our own greed, from our own fear, from our own reactivity, it may not be the best place to respond from. We may not find the appropriate response. What does it mean to respond from the eye of wisdom? What does it mean to respond from the heart of compassion? What does it mean to respond from the body of awakening, from actually being present knowing that this is the reality of human life. That there's, there's been no time in human history where there hasn't been war, fear, hatred, confusion, greed. It plays out over and over again, partly because people fail to look at their own experience, fail to look at it in a way that liberates it, that frees them from the bonds of, of um, greed, hatred, and delusion. And so when the Buddha talked about peace, he actually talked about, he equated it with freedom. Nirvana, Nibbana in the Pali, is often talked about as peace. And it's the peace, it's, it's being um, free from the thrall, from the from being enslaved by greed, aversion, and delusion, confusion. And so the Buddha, it is said, was completely and totally enlightened. And he related to people at every level of society, every strata, every class, every caste, because he was living in India that was 
governed and really ruled by the caste system and still very strongly influenced even though the caste system has been outlawed and he responded in ways that were radical that were revolutionary by, by having a sangha that didn't where caste didn't matter it wasn't limited to anybody because of their birth because of their status at birth wasn't limited because of class or race. He, re, he related to kings, he related to the people of power, and he did his best to help at times, to try to uh, um, um, help people to see clearly the, the delusion of war, the delusion of hatred, the delusion, the confusion of greed. And sometimes he was successful, and sometimes he wasn't. And so, and then, so I'm giving you a little bit of a big picture. I want to give a more personal. I want to speak to it. How do we practice? How do we practice with the news in Lebanon and Beirut, etc.? How do we practice with it? The first thing to do is to actually be honest about how it impacts us. Maybe with grief or anger. Maybe with despair or hopelessness. To actually be honest with what's happening. Because that's the doorway to freedom. We can't pretend to see from the eye of wisdom if that's not happening. We can't pretend to feel compassion for everybody involved if that's not happening. We actually have to be honest with ourselves first. And then to learn how to sit with the fire of that, the anger or the fear or the hopelessness. And to begin to see that our reaction ultimately is what we can be responsible for. What we can begin to liberate. What we can begin to find our freedom in and then our response may clarify itself what to do, and I mean the response of action. How do we respond? Part of sitting with, that part of contemplating even the response is to contemplate all the beliefs we might have about what the right response might be. What we're supposed to do. And then see really where our heart is drawn, where the wisest part of us is drawn, where the freest part of us is drawn. Maybe we'll, we'll never get totally free of our reactions, but we can begin to discern the difference between our reactivity and our responsibility <coughs> to reality. And, and again, I, I want to make a little more pitch for authenticity here the authenticity of our feeling. We, we often, because Buddhism has certain ideals, like peace is an ideal, or non-harming is an ideal, or non-aggression is an ideal of Buddhism, sometimes we'll cut off from our aggressive feelings, or our angry feelings, or our agitation. And that might not be so skillful that partly we want to liberate that energy 
that gets focused into aggression or fear. But there's a life there, there's a liveness there, there's energy there, there's a strength there, there's a power there. If we can begin to free it from the reactivity. And so the beginning of freeing it from the reactivity is actually sitting with it, sitting in the fire of our own experience. Now, I'm describing mostly mindfulness practice as a response. But another important response is compassion practice. And compassion practice is based, is rooted in the capacity to see the suffering. To see the suffering that's trans race, trans nationality, trans country, I think it was, um, I can't remember who said it, Thoreau, not Thoreau, Emerson, not Emerson, somebody said, he said, if we could see the, uh, if we could see the secret history of our enemy, we would find sorrow and suffering enough to dispel all animosity. Maybe Thoreau, I can't remember who. It's when we fail to see the humanness of our enemy that we have an enemy. The Dalai Lama often talks about um, the Chinese government as my friends, the enemy. And that it's, it's kind of amazing if we read the stories of Tibetan people, practitioners, monks, nuns, who've been jailed by the Chinese government over the last 40 or 50 years. And what it's been like for them to do compassion practice for their keepers while they were in jail. That the one thing that the, 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 the guards or the police or the soldiers couldn't take from them was their compassion practice. And they would offer their compassion practice for their jailers. And it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing that human beings have that capacity, which is also described in the Christian tradition. You know, forgive them, Lord, they know not what they do. Seeing through the eye of wisdom, the heart of compassion. And we have that capacity. We have that capacity, each of us has that capacity. It may mean sitting in quite a fierce fire before that capacity clarifies itself for each of us. And so compassion, forgiveness. Is, is there any other hope for humanity except for forgiveness? I don't know. Is there any other hope? You know, one of the most amazing things is that apartheid ended, at least institutionally, in South Africa in a peaceful way. And the fact that they've been working with peace and reconciliation ever since, forgiveness. And it's not that 
it's all done or it's all resolved or everybody loves everybody. That, that's, that wouldn't be honest at all. But the example of what they're attempting to do in South Africa is quite, quite inspiring, quite amazing. And the one other piece that I'll add, speaking about how to practice with our world the way it is, is to remember that, is to remember to keep your eyes open, really open. Mindfulness means to really pay attention. So pay attention to the suffering. Pay attention to your own suffering, the suffering of the world. But pay attention to the beauty of the world. Pay attention to the joy or the delight of the world. The amazing possibility for human beings. The fact even that we're here and our friends next door are here. And why are we here? Except really, I, mean, I, I just don't believe any of you are here except out of really the goodness of your hearts the best of what human beings are. It's what draws people to spirituality. That there's something happening that's not just the wars, not just the hatred, not just racism. And it's very important to see that also, to keep our eyes open to, the, to things as they are, to the whole world as it is. And in some sense here, I'm describing the practice of the Brahma Viharas. For that part of the Brahma Viharas is to first of all be open to our experience, all of it. And that openness has a friendly quality to it. Like the Dalai Lama, my friend's the enemy. Or he goes around the world and if you meet the Dalai Lama, he treats you like an old friend. And then the heart and, and partly when we talk about the, the Brahma Viharas, I think we should just join them, really. <laughs> I think that's, it's, you know. I don't, I don't think we do enough chanting, to be honest, really. It's fun to chant, get, to get going. Um, partly the Brahma Viharas are part of the appropriate response. As we sit with our reactivity, as we sit with our fear or anger or confusion or hopelessness or helplessness about what's happening, what gets liberated is the heart. And the heart, your heart, really nobody can touch, ultimately. Nobody can take it away from you, ultimately. And so when we, when we have a flavor of this, a taste of this, a taste of the freedom of the heart, then the heart begins to respond appropriately. And when there's suffering, the heart naturally responds to that suffering with empathy, with care, with kindness, with compassion. And when there's beauty, when there's the goodness of life, the joy of life, the delight, the beauty, the, the, the magic of life, then the heart enjoys life. And joy is part of life and part of Buddhist practice. 
I've said it many times, the Buddha's followers were, were characterized as the happy, he was called the happy one. And his, his uh, followers were seen as um, happy, joyful, uh, exultant, and with a gazelle-like mind, meaning they were light-hearted. And the other piece about the Brahma Viharas is that the heart has its own equanimity, its own balance. It's really the fourth Brahma Vihara is equanimity. So there's metta, which is loving kindness or friendliness, um, karuna, which is compassion, um, mudita, which is joy, and then upekka, which is equanimity. It's partly the heart's capacity to see the way things are and to see that this is the way things are. And to accept the way things are as part of the basis for an appropriate response. Partly our resistance to the way things are makes it almost impossible to respond appropriately. It's why openness is important, why we want to be open to the world, to exactly what's happening for everybody. Because we won't be able to respond appropriately otherwise. part of our practice, notice what's happening now with your body, your breath. Nobody can take away your capacity to stay present. Nobody can take that away from you. No experience. Experience may shake you, make it hard, but really, as one of my teachers once said, it's never the other person. Whatever other people do, they're going to do. Right? We all know this. There's no controlling anybody else. There's no controlling our environment. How we respond to ourselves, to our own experience, nobody can take that away from us. So let's talk a little about speech. Truth. So somebody asked about speech and saying the right thing at the right time or the wrong time or if this speech causes suffering or if it's difficult. The Buddha, um, he gave a lot of different guidelines about right speech. Some of the key guidelines are saying what's true. Not speaking disparagingly of people. Not speaking in terms of gossiping about things. Um, not using harsh speech. And then he also talked about appropriate. When's it appropriate to speak? Sometimes, and he basically says, he says sometimes it's 
not appropriate to say what's true because it's not the right time. That somebody, if somebody can't hear it, if it's actually not helpful, then what we, why are we saying it? And so one of the keys to all of right speech is what is our intention for speaking? What is our intention? We may see something's wrong and the intention may be to help or the intention may be to poke when we, when we want to say something wrong. We may see that, you know, we may see something about somebody that isn't so good. We may want to help them by speaking or we may want to hurt them by speaking. Our, our own veracity, our own honesty, our own truthfulness with ourselves is very important. One of the keys foundations for then what do we put out into the world through our speech? And, and the Buddha emphasized speech over and over again because speech is so powerful. What we say has an impact. Have you ever noticed how somebody's kind words has such a good impact on us? Or somebody's harsh words actually have such a not good impact on us? Speech is powerful. So partly there's the guidelines around speech and there's also the capacity to stay present while we're speaking, which is a very important part of mindful speech, that the mindfulness of speech is rooted in our being able to stay present while we're speaking, while we're listening. And that's an art in and of itself. It's not an easy practice. Mostly we start speaking and we're just lost in the words. And so the question about voice was very interesting because we have been teaching this body class and the last week we did what's called in the mindfulness teachings full awareness full awareness in every activity so and the Buddha talks about in moving and standing sitting lying down walking reaching grasping eating defecating urinating and then the last two he says are in speaking and keeping silent and this is a, this is in the mindfulness of the body section of his teaching speaking and keeping silent as a mindfulness of the body practice and somebody gave me a ride home. I don't... Is Sally here? There you are, Sally. And Sally said something to me about her own voice. She said, oh, you know, I, I've been trying to figure out how to do this and I realized I need to actually feel my voice. And I, I, I loved hearing that because I realized everybody's going to learn, figure out differently how to make this mindfulness of speech practice their own. Like that's not exactly what I do, but that's a great way to do it, is to actually feel the vibration, feel the resonance in your body when you do speak. Feel the, the aliveness that's here in the speech itself. To root in the present, to root in now, to root in the nowness of reality, because that nowness is much closer to our true nature than our ideas and beliefs and imaginings about the past or future. It's why the now is valued. It's not just being in the present is a nice thing. 
there's something here for us. There's something rich for us here. There's the depth of who we are is only found in the nowness of the present moment. It's never found anywhere else. And so what we seek is found now, found here. It's why we want to ground and it's why an appropriate response can only come out of rooting in the present moment. The Buddhism um, says a lot about addiction. It says a lot about addiction. They use a different term. They call it clinging. Clinging. And actually, they actually use the term addiction for extreme clinging. It's called, um, well, the four, the four cl- main clingings, the four upadanas, are clinging to sensory experience. And this is where generally we find the world of addiction is an extreme clinging or craving or and technically the word that's that's translated as um, um, uh, desire or this wanting is really related to addiction. It's thirst, hunger and it's really at the root of all addiction. There's a thirst, there's a hunger to fill something. There's something we can't tolerate. And we want, and when we believe that whatever it is, whether it's food or sex or drugs or information, can be many things that we're addicted to, busyness, speed, somehow will keep us away from the emptiness we're trying to fill. Either we'll fill the emptiness or it'll keep us away from the emptiness. And this isn't the emptiness of anatta. This is the emptiness that's more a deficient emptiness. This is the emptiness of, of the ego. This is the emptiness of the sense of self that's based on image, history, belief, past, um, So, let's see if I can tie these all together a little bit because part of what Buddhism teaches is actually to pay attention to our thirst, to pay attention to our hunger, our grasping, our wanting. Remember grasping, or let let me put it this way, clinging comes in two versions. Grasping at things or pushing away things. And either way, we're denying the reality of what's here. We're trying to get away from the reality of what's here now. Either by, by trying to get something else, you know, a good, good food or good sex or good drugs or good, good artwork or good music or good whatever it is. And I want to be careful. It doesn't mean we can't enjoy good food or good sex or good artwork or things. We can enjoy it but we want to pay attention to when there's a grasping for it, when, it's, when that is the only strategy we have to feel good, then we're in trouble. Then we're enthralled by it, we're enslaved by it, and it's one of the characteristics of addiction is that we end up enslaved by what started out as something to make us feel good. We end up enthralled by it. At the mercy of it. And it doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work. It doesn't do what, what it initially did. 
partly, and this is not in Buddhism, but it's something that I think about. I always think about, especially when I think about drugs and addiction, I think about the movement towards getting high. And that's a very interesting way of conceiving of the movement in addiction and drugs. Because there's something in human beings that we're drawn to getting high in one way or another, in one form. Human beings have used intoxicants since the beginning of time and we're drawn to them. And there's something we're drawn to in the drugs that we don't realize is in us, that is in us. Or we haven't learned skillful ways to access that what's called getting high. In, in the Western tradition, sometimes God is considered on high. That that's where God is. God is on high. And so I just, I have some way that I relate in my mind the, the actual movement towards drugs and getting high with the spiritual. I don't, I don't, I think the movement is towards freedom, towards happiness, towards um, a consciousness beyond our small sense of self. Unfortunately, it doesn't work. But if we can begin to see what we really want, what we really desire, what's at the bottom of all desire, all craving, it's the craving for whatever word you want to use, God, freedom, liberation, wholeness, happiness. There's a beautiful piece from Martin Buber. He talks about lust and that kind of desire, that kind of craving. And he says, and he's speaking to someone who's working with lust, and he says, oh, keep looking at what is it that makes it so beautiful? What is it that makes it so desirable? Where, and where is the source of that which you desire? What is the source of that which you desire? And of course, the source, at least in the Western tradition, is always God. So it can't be, it's God. It's God's universe. So what are we really seeking, I think, becomes an important question in addiction. What do we really want? Can we begin to see the yearning of our heart, of our whole being, for whatever you may call it, wholeness or God, or freedom? And then the question becomes very pertinent about who's seeking this? Who's seeking this? Who, who are we? What, and the question is, as you posed it, had to do with self-esteem, self-respect, self-care, in terms of anatta, in terms of the Buddhist teaching of the, the Buddhist teaching that's most accurately characterized as the not-self teaching. So, few th few f some context is helpful here. The most helpful context that I can offer is that when the Buddha was asked directly, is there a self or is there not a self, he wouldn't answer that question. And he wouldn't answer that question and, and his attendant later said, well, why didn't you answer that? He said, it'd be too confusing. What, what, remember that the Buddha was very much on the side of what's helpful and skillful in terms of one's own freedom. And so to that end, he was a lot about teaching skillfulness and how to skillfully use the teachings. And so um, 
mostly he, he used the not-self teaching to ask us to investigate, well, what do we, where do we take something to be ourself and why? What is, what is it that we're taking to be self? Because we're all taking something to be the self. And so what is it that we take to be the self? Is it the body, which most of us take the body as being ourself? Or our feelings, oh, that's me. Or our thoughts, that's me. But what if we keep looking? What if we look with the light of awareness, the light of mindfulness, then where... Where is the self in the body? Where is the self in the feelings? Where is the self in the thoughts? And are you the thoughts that happened yesterday? And where are they? If we're the thoughts that happened six months ago, I can't remember any of them. Or even the body that happened six months ago, we know that it's not the same body. Where is the self? What are we taking to be the self? So, on, but on, a, on another level, he also understood that if we're not totally free, we're taking something to be ourselves. And whatever that is, he encouraged a tremendous kindness, a tremendous care, tremendous compassion. Even if it's a little misunderstanding, well then there's, there's a care for our delusion, for our confusion. It's, it's our suffering. And so our, we want to be compassionate. And we can't jump over, we can't jump to the ideal, oh, there's no self or there's not a self. Because actually all of us are experiencing some level of self. The question is, how do we relate to ourself? That's a really important question. And self-respect seems very important. To respect what's here to respect our humanness, to respect our, our foibles, to respect what's not clarified yet or liberated yet. Because that is skillful from a Buddhist perspective because it sets the ground for liberation. And one way liberation is understood is of understanding the truth. And so, so the teaching is from Zen Master Dogen, he said, um, Sentient beings are deluded about enlightenment. Buddhas are enlightened about delusion. Sentient beings are deluded about enlightenment. We have all kinds of ideas about what enlightenment is. And all of it's delusion. All of our ideas about enlightenment are not true. Buddhas don't worry so much about what enlightenment is. They pay attention to delusion until the delusion lets go. And then let's pay attention to what's there when we're free from greed, hatred, and confusion. And let's pay attention to who's there. Because one of the beautiful things about freedom, about liberation, is that anatta, selflessness, not self, doesn't mean there's nobody there. But what's there is not bound to greed, aversion, and delusion. What's there is not bound to some idea, some 
constellation of identity based on the past or the future, based on our conditioning. You know, we could get we could get a little more esoteric here. We could get a little more Zen and talk about identityless identity. An identity there is something there and something true there. We could even say Technically, we wouldn't say this so much in Buddhism, but we could say it here in the Unitarian Church, that, there's, that there is someone there, but that someone is not constellated as an identity in the usual way that we all constellate our identity. And all we have to look is look at the freest people we could imagine. The Dalai Lama is a great example. What's there is beautiful, is lovely, is wise, and is very, very, very human. The best of us, the best of our humanity is what's here when freedom is here. The best, the most, the maturity of the human heart is what's here when anatta is here. I think that's a good place to stop tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.